How do we right the wrongs of over 100 years ago? This is the big question. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission defines reconciliation as, quote, establishing and maintaining a mutually respectful relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples in this country, end quote. The Commission also recognizes that treaties must be honored as a part of this process. The word treaties refers to the 11 numbered treaties signed between the Indigenous peoples of Central and Western Canada and the Crown. However, the language used by politicians of the day, as well as the text of the treaties themselves, convey the intent to undermine Indigenous ways of life. In his book called The Treaties of Canada, 19th century politician Alexander Morris shows the perspectives of the government at the time of the signing of the treaties. When describing the peoples of the Blackfoot Confederacy, he writes that they are, quote, some of the most warlike and intelligent but intractable bands of the Northwest, end quote. For context, intractable means not easily governed, managed, or directed. Morris goes on to say that they are unlikely to become farmers, but as the country they inhabit presents unusual facilities for that industry, they may be induced to adopt a pastoral life, end quote. The signing of the treaties and their intent have consequences to this day. In this episode of The Big Question, we're talking to Gina Starblanket. My name's Gina Starblanket. I'm an assistant professor in the political science department here at the University of Calgary. And I'm Cree and Soto, French and German, and I'm a member of the Starblanket Cree Nation, which is in Treaty 4 territory. About the implications of past wrongs and what can be done to advance meaningful reconciliation. Listeners of CJSW will often hear land acknowledgements where we say that CJSW resides in Treaty 7 territory. You also mentioned that you were from Treaty 4 territory. What are the numbered treaties? The numbered treaties are diplomatic agreements that were entered into between different nations, so Indigenous nations, Cree, Soto, Ojibwe, Blackfoot, etc., and the Canadian state, or the Dominion of Canada at the time. Why were these treaties signed? There were many different incentives to sign treaties. Indigenous people engaged in long-standing practices of treaty making for hundreds of years prior to the arrival of European newcomers. And so there's this sort of tendency to assume that uh, Indigenous treaties with Europeans were the first treaties that we had ever signed, right? When in fact we had other forms of peace and friendship treaties, and other diplomatic agreements that we entered into with one another for many, many years prior to the arrival of Europeans. When we encountered newcomers, realized that these newcomers planned on sticking around, uh, we realized we better have some sort of framework for governing the relationship. And that is when many Indigenous people started to talk about treaties being signed, right? They were very uncomfortable. And a lot of the oral histories and, and archival records indicate that Indigenous people, particularly in the prairie regions, were, were very uncomfortable that settlers were arriving and, and surveying the territory prior to having entered into any such arrangement. So they, some Indigenous Indigenous people wanted to sign treaties in order to lay out the terms through which the relationship uh, would be governed and how people would agree to live together and share jurisdiction in, in these spaces. Why did the government of Canada want these treaties? Settlers, or at least crown authorities, in many of the transcripts that I've read, 
talked a lot about the government's desire to sign treaties and enter into treaty relationships in order to address outstanding Indigenous claims to the land, right? So they, from the get-go, conceptualized them a lot differently than Indigenous people did, right, as some sort of transaction that would settle the land question and whether Indigenous people had any rights or claims to the land. Of course, Indigenous people saw those a bit differently uh, and didn't didn't understand them as land transactions because that was very much inconsistent with our own legal traditions and worldviews of how humans relate to the land. Also, why they were why these treaties were signed was, you know, one obviously relating to the land. Indigenous people saw Europeans arrive, saw that they were behaving as though they owned this place and acting in such a way as though they owned these places. And that very much concerned many Indigenous people who don't see humans as owning the land, right, or as even being able to own the land. There were concerns that the arrival of Europeans would impede our own ability to enact our relationships and our responsibilities to the land. So treaties were very much intended to ensure the maintenance of our pre-existing ways as Indigenous people. That's very much how we understood them, right? That these would ensure the continuity of existing ways while also being willing to learn new ways, right? Perhaps a bit of a, a best of both worlds, if you will, in trying to cultivate some form of healthy and good relationship with newcomers and a relationship of of sharing that involved the retention of pre-existing ways of being but also an openness and willingness to learn new ways that that Europeans would bring with them agriculture different ways of different forms of education reading writing and so on but what our ancestors really emphasized is that we never we, it wasn't supposed to be a trade-off, right? You weren't supposed to have to relinquish our existing our existing ways in order to learn those things and in order to gain those skills that newcomers would also bring with them. What was the difference between how Indigenous people viewed the treaties versus how settlers viewed the treaties? If we're talking about the differences between how Indigenous and non-Indigenous people understood treaties, definitely one large distinction is uh, this idea of land transaction or land session. When we look at the written version of treaties, land session is a prominent and central part of every written treaty as they were transcribed by Europeans. When we look at the records surrounding the negotiation of the treaties, and by this I mean the Crown negotiators kept records of what was actually discussed on those for Treaty 4, you know, during those six days that they were discussing treaties. The question of land doesn't really come up at all. In fact, commissioners were instructed to avoid the land question with Indigenous people, and it, and, uh, to, they were instructed to avoid um, broaching that topic at all. <laughs> so while land wasn't talked about during treaty negotiations, it formed a very prominent part. Land cession and land surrender formed a very prominent part of every written treaty. So that discrepancy, that question over land uh, and that different understanding over land has really been at the root of most of the major issues surrounding treaty implementation and, and major uh, disagreements surrounding tr treaty implementation that have ensued since. I wanted to take a minute to describe some of the posters used by various officials to entice immigrants to settle in the West. This first one has bold lettering at the top with plenty of exclamation points. 
It reads Canada, healthy climate, free schools. 160-acre farms in Western Canada, free. Another one describes Western Canada as the new Eldorado, likening it to the fabled city of gold. The text on the side of this poster reads, Homes for everybody, easy to reach, rich virgin soil, and more. But attention should also be paid to two lines that say, Nothing to fear and protected by the government. At the bottom, the poster ends with, This is your opportunity. Why not embrace it? I asked Gina how Canada used these treaties to perpetuate the viewpoints conveyed by these posters. Treaties, I think in many instances, get invoked not just to perpetuate colonial viewpoints, but to perpetuate the theft of land and the denial of political authority. Um, So it's not just, you know, what the colonial or Eurocentric reading of treaties is. We have to also understand that reading as having concrete legal and political implications, right? So colonialism... Obviously, well, you know, it's it's quite well established, quite well recognized now that it's driven by and sustained by capitalist motivations, right? The drive to obtain and exploit the land. This is a central part of the colonial experience. And this is something that's ongoing, right? This isn't just something that happened 100 years ago. Uh, it's, It's something that has effects that continue to this day. And by that, I mean the dispossession of land and our political authority. So we agreed to share this land with newcomers. That was very much consistent with our uh, our own political traditions, our ideas of humans' relationships with the living earth. Uh, but then Canada usurps it, places parameters around our ability to carry out our rights and responsibilities to the land. Uh, Indigenous people get relocated, estranged from our territories, rendered alien in our own homes. And, you know, even those that weren't relocated from their ancestral territories then get denied the authority and jurisdiction relative to those territories, right? So we see all of these things you know, initiated by, of course, some of the legislation that Canada is being or that Canada was developing at the time in the form of the Indian Act. But that is still in place, right? That denial of jurisdiction and um, Indigenous government and Indigenous law in these places, that denial is still ongoing, right? It still places parameters around our ability to protect the land uh, and enact our, our responsibilities to it and ensure that future generations can enjoy it in the way that we would like them to. When settlers were promised protection by the government and advertising, you have nothing to fear, what did that mean? Early settlement campaigns really advertised the idea and championed the idea that these territories were wide open, unoccupied spaces and where where Indigenous people had largely vanished, you know, either died off, um, been assimilated and so on and so on. Where Indigenous people did exist in some of those immigration handbooks, they describe us as, you know, being satisfied with little parcels of land and hunting grounds that are in really in the margins or the periphery of that fertile land that's desired by settlers, right? So from the get-go, there's this idea of the vanishing Indian or the idea that if indig- Indigenous people are have mostly been eliminated from these territories and those who haven't aren't going to pose much of a problem. How they sought to ensure that was through the imposition of 
um, European orders of law and governance, right? And so the idea, th th there was very much this idea that Indigenous people did not have forms of government or um, mechanisms to enforce order and law in our own communities. And of course, we know that that's not true. We had very, very um, long traditions of how to order constitute ourselves politically, um, legally, long traditions of what we would do uh, when there was conflicts between peoples or, you know, when um, injustices had occurred. How did the settlers' legal system take precedence over the Indigenous legal system? First, they needed to identify the need or the absence of uh, any system of law and order that paralleled its own in these spaces in order to justify the extension of its own forms of government into the region. So what then happens is we see this simultaneous imposition of Canadian law and um, systems of government, both within settlers, newly established settler societies, but also uh, within Indigenous communities, right? So we see them imposing these forms of um, European government and these models of government on Indigenous communities through the Indian Act in the form of the Band Council system and so on. Um, and at the same time, this simultaneous criminalization of Indigenous peoples' way, traditional ways of being. Right? So there's this sort of... Um, establishment of Canadian law and order, the deployment of police forces to these spaces to protect settler citizens and, and these new settler societies, um, and then the simultaneous proliferation of these sort of discourses of Indigenous criminality, deviance. Of course, those follow from the idea that Indigenous, uh, these ideas of racial inferiority um, and this idea that Indigenous people both aren't able to govern themselves, but also pose an inherent threat to, to settler societies, right? That then, you know, justifies the criminalization of Indigenous people who are found near or on settler properties um, and uh, allows Canada to promise those forms of security and protection to settlers who have arrived in these places. Through the campaigns advertising the land as untouched and settlers as tamers of the wildlands and peoples, what are the consequences being felt today due to these campaigns? Well, we see a continuation, a sort of inheritance, if you will, of that mentality, right? And so we, a lot of the stories that continue to be told about Indigenous people in the prairies replicate those ideas of racial uh, inferiority, deficiency, criminality. Those don't come from nowhere, right? Those are inherited. Those are passed on, a lot of those perceptions. Um, and they're continually reproduced intergenerationally. So those are some of the narratives um, that we commonly hear in contemporary contexts about Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations uh, and some of the underlying issues um, that configure Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations in the prairies. But in fact, there's also another there's also other stories that we don't hear of as often, right? And those are the stories that I try and bring to the fore in my own research, those stories of land theft, those stories of political subordination that are still ongoing, right? Treaties are not land transactions. We did not agree to cede and surrender uh, title to the land. These were supposed to be relationships through which we would share the land. And so if we start from that point, then Indigenous people 
continue to suffer the consequences of political subordination and land dispossession, right? We are denied an active role in how those how humans will govern their actions relative to those territories. Um, we're denied our ability to enact our own ways of being, to enjoy those territories uh, as treaties were supposed to ensure. You know, treaties were supposed to provide for the continuity of those ways of being in these spaces. All right. So when we start from that point, a, a different story starts to develop. And that is one of ongoing subordination, ongoing oppression, ongoing um, really lack of opportunity other than those that involve joining or becoming incorporated into the dominant capitalist economy. Some indigenous nations have reached agreements on self-government. Are there limitations? Well, first, I should say that, of course, no, in, not all indigenous communities and not all indigenous people agree on um, proposed ways forward, right? There's differences of opinion on, in how we should move forward. Self-government is a perfect example of that, right? And so um, some people, some communities have voted to enter into these self-government agreements um, and they found them to be empowering and liberatory in a number of respects. Others have criticized those agreements because often those, that negotiation process is pre-established, predetermined by the federal government. Um, it takes place within the parameters of Canadian law. Uh, the power relations aren't open to um, negotiation from the get-go. And often Indigenous people in negotiating different aspects of self-government, which I would actually refer to more as self-administration, sort of akin to the powers of a municipality, uh, in negotiating those powers, Indigenous communities are often asked uh, to agree to the extinguishment of rights that aren't outlined in the agreements or were asked to agree to the non-assertion of those rights, right? So those those self-government agreements, they don't come freely, right? They come with an exchange uh, and uh, or a willingness um, to guarantee that we won't be challenging Canada on um, land claims, future land claims, or rights that aren't covered by the agreement itself. So often, uh, again, they come at a cost. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission created 94 calls to action to advance the process of reconciliation. Do they go far enough? Yeah, I think that truth-telling, commemoration, public education, apologies for specific instances, all of this, this is all okay. This is all good, right, to acknowledge uh, the wrongs that have been committed to date. Um, but again, I ask, what of the systems that gave rise to those injustices? And how are those being altered? How are, how are those power relations being addressed? Um, how is political subordination being addressed? How is the land question being addressed? Uh, and on, generally on whose terms is reconciliation being contemplated? When you start from that question, uh, you then get to the question of who is this reconciliation serving? What is it attending to? But most importantly, what is it not attending to? Right? What is it leaving out? Given how far things have come between when the treaties were signed and today, how do we approach reconciliation? We have to be careful not to fall into this trap of believing that there's this one-size-fits-all solution um, to, to these issues in the relationship. Um, and 
Second of all, the the um, possible solutions that people propose are often a bit of a caricature, right? Give all the land back and send all settlers home <laughs> and their descendants, or you know, have indigenous people um, essentially you know, give up any claims to distinctiveness and distinct rights and um, assimilate into the broader Canadian society. There is a lot of space in between those two poles to think of solutions, right, to think of ways of improving the relationship. I mentioned before that this has to happen at multiple scales. So at the interpersonal scale, there are things people can do in their everyday actions and interactions to either reproduce or challenge the very um, prevalent forms of racism, the um, colonial dynamics that continue to play out in our interactions uh, every single day. And so some of that you know, is informing yourself. Some of that is learning about a story uh, um, that is different from the stories that you hold. Uh, part of that is having those uncomfortable conversations, perhaps you know, leaning into that discomfort and working through that and then learning something from that. Uh, at a broader scale, there's also a lot that governments can do or that we can try and push our governments to do to hold them more accountable. So I think that a first step is that you know, federal provincial governments need to uh, take Indigenous governments seriously as distinct orders of government that were affirmed in the signing of treaties as we understand them. Right? So that is, that's something that can be done. And from there... We revisit these. Um, uh, we re revisit existing jurisdictional arrangements that were established at a time when it was illegal for Indigenous people to mobilize politically or organize politically. Right. So we now recognize uh, that the those restrictions were wrong, that they were unjust, but we haven't substantially changed the system that gave rise to them. We still live within those configurations. So I think revisiting that is a first step. Going forward, who plays a part in righting the wrongs of over 100 years ago? So who plays a part in this process? Everyone who resides here in Canada is implicated by the structures of colonialism that continue to exist. Thus, everyone has a role in addressing this. When I say everyone is implicated by these questions, um, I mean that colonialism operates at multiple scales from the everyday interpersonal interactions to the broader interactions between governments. And by that, I mean Indigenous, provincial uh, and Canadian governments. Right. So we need to conceptualize solutions at multiple scales, um, also in the everyday and in the long term. Where do we go from here? I think where we go from here, we need to acknowledge ongoing wrongs that are committed in Canada's collective name, in the name of the national interest. Uh, we might, might remember that the national interest is what was being advertised in many of those early immigration posters that we're talking about earlier here, uh, that all too often that interest is pursued at the direct expense of uh, Indigenous populations or populations whose ideas of the good life exist outside of that national interest, right? And so we need to acknowledge those wrongs, the continual wrongs that are committed against Indigenous people, um, acknowledge treaties as relationship agreements, 
with concrete legal and political implications that have never been carried out and take concrete steps that are led by Indigenous people uh, to change the current configurations of power and jurisdiction. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Gina Starblanket, an assistant professor of the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary about meaningful reconciliation. For more stories about ongoing research at the University of Calgary, go to explore.ucalgary.ca. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. To find this episode as well as older episodes, subscribe to The Big Question wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Braden Alexander. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.